If you turn with me to John chapter 15, that's the scripture in which today's uh, teaching is based. John chapter 15, I'll be reading from verses 5 through 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. This is God's word. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, so on and so forth. If you're new or visiting, so far we've been looking at every dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. And today, we're looking at this one dimension of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit called kindness. Now, we just read from the New International Version. It's a translation of the Bible, the NIV. And the NIV and the ESV, they translate that word kindness The KJV, the King James Version, actually uses the word gentleness. There are other versions that use the word benignity or tolerance. In other words, what the Apostle Paul was trying to convey with respect to this particular fruit, part of the fruit of the Spirit, is that it's very difficult, at least in the English, to translate. The English word kindness comes from the root word that's similar to family, kinship. Treating other people like family, treating people genuinely with a hand of friendship. In fact, uh, Tim Keller, uh, my favorite preacher, he uses the word friendship as a way of capturing the essence of all those translations used. It's kind of a little bit of a shortcut. Um, The kind of friendship, the power of friendship that the gospel gives us. Why is it important? Because nothing, nothing is more life-changing than friendship. And this passage shows us four things. One, the nature of kindness. Two, how do you cultivate kindness? Three, the problem of kindness. And four, the power to be kind in a genuine way. The nature of kindness, cultivating kindness, the problem of kindness, and lastly, the power. Where do you get the power to become truly and genuinely kind? First, we're going to look at the nature of kindness. In the beginning of John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking about his relationship Uh, to his disciples, and he uses a particular metaphor. He says, I am the vine, Jesus is the vine, and you are the branches. It's a metaphor, a metaphor of deep unity, a deep oneness, because vines and branches, branches are attached to the vine, vines source the branch with power, and there's this intertwining and meshing that happens. It's a deep unity, a oneness, because of their intimate tie together. And the life-giving power that comes through the vine into the branch, there's this union 
And so in verse five, Jesus says, you are the branches. Verse six, if you do not remain in me, if you're not tied to me, intimately tied to me, if, we're not, if our lives are not intertwined, if there's no union there, like a branch that is thrown away and withers, that's what you are. Verses seven to eight, he says, what, what's, to, what's to God's glory? That you will bear, you as the branches will bear much fruit. But then in verse nine, he starts to say, remain in my love. And he starts to shift from this vine metaphor, and he talks about the intimate relationships, relationship between Jesus and his disciples. He starts with the vine, and then he starts moving towards the actual relationship that he has with his disciples. In verse 10, he says, I want you to obey my commands. And then by the time you get to verse 14, he says, you, he called you the branches. He says, now you're my friends. So this is tie. One part of this, of this passage, he's talking about the vine and the branches. And then this latter part, the second part, he talks about friendship. And he ties them together by saying, remain in me. That's the tie. There's this tie, this verbal tie that links the first part about the vine and the second part about friendship. And he uses the word remain, remain in me. Verse five, like branches, we are to remain in Jesus, who is our vine. And then in verse nine, we, in verse nine, we are to remain in Jesus' love because we are his friends. There's something about friendship. He says friendship then, much like this vine, intertwining, binding, life-giving. He says, that's who I am to you. And if you are like that with me, then you are like that with each other. You will become like that with each other. There's this oneness in Jesus among people in the church, and it's life-giving. You share common beliefs, and because you share a common faith, there's this sense of common values and interests. It leads to a common sense of mission. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, you have the early church. Immediately after Jesus ascends into heaven, the, the Spirit of God comes down into the, into the people, onto the people, and this early church, they were, it says that they were committed to the fellowship. And the fellowship, in other words, they weren't just hanging out. They weren't committed to fellowshipping. They were committed to the fellowship. They were committed to one another in this life-changing, life-giving, intertwining, binding way but oneness, but because of their oneness in Jesus, they were committed to each other. They were, we call that a very covenantal bond. They were willing to sacrifice for each other. They were willing to give radically for each other. They were willing to give at, at their own cost for one another. Why is kindness a fruit of the Spirit? It's because it's birthed from a oneness in Christ that can only be born from the Spirit of God. The nature of kindness is kinship. The nature of kindness is a real, deep, life-giving, spirit-driven friendship that's forged through an individual newness. You are saved individually and personally and relationally with Jesus. And because that relationship becomes so intertwined and intimate, it leads to a corporate oneness in Christ. I'm gonna say it like this. There are people who come into the church and they're just there, they're just in the church because they need friends, they're lonely. There's a great need for friends. And they don't care much about the premise of why people actually come together in worship. And if that's you, if, the, if there's even a part of that that's you, then one, you're never gonna have, you're never even gonna have the kind of friendship that you're actually really looking for. You're never gonna be able to have the f- kind of friendship that you actually need. Because there's nothing for that type of friendship to actually be about. 
Friendships have, at the base, common values, common faith, right? Common, common interests, common sense of mission and purpose. You're never going to have that common base that, that makes the foundation of your friendship. But secondly, you're never going to be truly kind. You're never going to be truly kind. And by the way, I'm not the one who said that. C.S. Lewis is the one that said, friendships have to have meaning, have to have purpose. There has to be something for that type of friendship to be about. But if you don't have that, you're never going to be kind. But if you come together, submit to Jesus as king, not just having salvation through Jesus, but the lordship of Jesus being common in your lives, And if you do that together, and if you say, yes, these values are my most common bond, then you will become more sweeter as a person. And then you will experience sweet moments together in deep community and oneness in Christ. That's the nature of kindness. Secondly, how do you cultivate it? Well, with friendships, because uh, by nature we're all broken, because by nature we're all sinners, You never get past the difficulty of loving somebody who's very different from you. It's got costs. On one hand, it's a supernatural thing. The gospel calls us together and draws us into one another, and it's very supernatural because we're so different from one another. D.A. Carson says, and he's a famous biblical scholar, he says that the church is filled, it consists of natural enemies. In other words, no one chose to come here because of one another. You hardly even knew each other. But you come together as natural enemies. People are so different from each other, and yet in that supernatural gathering, there are costs. It takes work and commitment and consistency towards what? Two things, one, in verse six, we see loyalty. And secondly, in verse 15, we see vulnerability, accountability. The first, let's look at loyalty. Jesus says, remain in me, verse six. If you don't remain in me, like a branch that's thrown away. What is he saying? He's saying a branch, you can't just pull off a branch and then snap it right back in. Once the branch departs from the vine, Once it's torn away from the vine, its life is over. There are a lot of people who come together and they start out at one church and because of something that was said, something they didn't like, there's a breakage and a gap. Instead of resolving the gap, they walk away. What you don't realize, given that this is a healthy scenario and a healthy ministry and a healthy church, you walk away and you're tearing yourself away. You're saying, hey, what you're saying is essentially, I cannot be spoken into. Well, you're number one, you're never going to have genuine friendships that way. It's, it's the beginning of, of the end of spiritual maturity in your life. And so you have to have a branch can't be pulled off and then snap back in. You can't have the same kind of oneness that way. Oneness takes intentionality. Oneness takes work. Oneness means we listen. Oneness means we remain. That's what it means. So he says, remain in my love. Friendship is about remaining. Kindness is about remaining. It's about committing. It's about enduring in mission together. That means you have to make time for each other. In this new kind of community that's coming together in Christ, you have to make time for each other. There has to be an intentionality. There has to be a commitment. It can't be something that you worship is absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient for building community. community takes intentionality, you see? So you have to make time for each other. That means also that through the highs and lows, your friends will always be there. 
They're not going to sit there and do a cost-benefit analysis and say, you know what, this is not working in my favor. I'm out. That's not a friend. And that is not kindness. Proverbs 17 says what? A friend loves at all times. In other words, a true friend says, do you know what you've done? You've hurt me. You've hurt other people around me. You've broken things. You've betrayed other people. Friends confront. In fact, they'll say, to themselves at least, that I'm willing to lose my relationship with you as long as it prevents you from losing your soul. I'm willing to risk my relationship with you to tell you what you need to hear if that will prevent you from losing your life. And yet they will never walk away from you. They will never let you go. A true friend says this, your friend, that your, your sin is greater than I ever imagined but my love for you will be greater than you could ever dream. Does that remind you of somebody? That's Jesus. That's our Savior. The second thing is vulnerability. We looked at kindness expressed as loyalty, which reflects the kindness of God and his grace. But the second part of it is loyalty. In verse 15, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer, I, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. A good friend does what? He tells you everything. A good friend tells you everything. A good friend opens up. A good friend will share their pains with you. They will share their hurts with you. But they will also share their plans with you. They will share their motives with you. A good friend will share their joys with you, but they will also share their desires with you. A good friend will, sh will be vulnerable. They're going to open up. And a friend doesn't just open up about themselves. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Why? Because friends are like surgeons for our souls. They're experts on you. They've been with you. They've observed you. They've studied you. They know you. And so a true friend will tell you, this is a deep problem in, that, in my friend's heart. And will try to start doing surgery. They will make incisions. They will say words and use words and, and speak through scripture and say, hey, they're going to make slight incisions in your heart. It's going to hurt. They're wounds. But they're faithful wounds because they're not intended to hurt you in the long run. They're actually intended to heal. They're intended to shape you in a way, to sharpen you. A, a true friend will tell you like it, like it is. They will tell it like it is. They're going to tell you the truth. They're going to tell you what everyone says about you except to you. But because they're a friend, they'll be gentle, but they'll make the incisions that are necessary to help you heal. If you have a good friend, their kindness is loyalty, but their kindness is also honest. Their kindness is also honest about themselves. They're going to open up. They're going to be vulnerable. But they're also going to be vulnerable, take tremendous risks, open up themselves to you about you. That's what family does. That's what kin does. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Wounds to heal. Thirdly, we're going to look at the problem. There is a problem. The problem of kindness is this. Loyalty is draining. Vulnerability is scary. Loyalty is draining. When you, when, if there's no presence of God in our lives, loyalty is absolutely draining. If there's no presence of God, vulnerability is very, very scary. 
Both of them are difficult to do as it is, impossible to do consistently, and certainly impossible to do without the Spirit of God at work in your relationships, in your heart. Why? Just look at the types of relationships that we see around us. Just look at the types of relationships that we try to keep. There are several types. One, one type, relationships that are forged out of convenience. You have common interests, but you also share in a common loneliness, and you happen to be at the right place at the right time together. I mean, there are, there are folks, I've seen this in the church as a pastor over and over again. Everyone in the group, they came together because individually, they're all lonely, and they're all searching, but because they're near each other, and they have common interests through the church, they become friends. Generally, what happens in these cases, in these groups is as life stages change I mean you, we have to have tremendous foresight as life stages change these friendships tend to dissipate you know why because they were just using each other in the right place at the right time they were just there using each other secondly you have the political types of friendships people who have agendas and they come together because they can in some ways they need each other to fulfill each other's agenda they need to build themselves build themselves up Sometimes it could be a, uh, seeking out a mentor, right? But really what you're doing is you're not, you're not looking to learn about um, how to mature spiritually. You're actually just trying to fulfill an agenda. And some of us are super proud that we've kind of developed networks at work, maybe even among families. When you get married, I mean, you have multiple families that are coming together and you develop political relationships, even in the family. These political relationships are really to serve and fulfill your agenda, maybe even boost your ego. You're friends to the degree that you will help to fulfill each other's agenda. You're still just using each other. But thirdly, you have these social relationships. A lot of people in the church, they just come together just to have fun. It's social. In fact, in a very, very culturally mono-ethnic uh, uh, mono culture, you tend to have people who really come together. It's their only source of social interaction with other people. And so because you have common interests, you use that common interest to really develop social relationships. The church really becomes more like a country club. And what happens is, but then the church is only about community on your terms. The moment something goes wrong, the moment there's dissonance, the moment there's something uh, that, that, uh, that creates a little bit of turbulence, it's easy for you to walk away. And it's usually because these relationships are social or romantic. These are the types of people that you'll hang out with or date, but at no real cost, so you can always walk away. No real sacrifice, so you can always walk away. So there's never gonna be any loyalty, and there certainly isn't gonna be a lot of true, genuine vulnerability. Only to the degree that you get your needs fulfilled, and only to the degree that these relationships fulfill your desires, you're still just using each other, even in the church. Even in the church, we have relationships that form out of convenience, relationships that are formed to fulfill political agendas, relationships to fulfill social needs. You're never going to see deep loyalty there. You're never going to see true, genuine vulnerability there. The kind of vulnerability that you need to invest in and the kind of vulnerability that you need to receive in a way that demonstrates the character of kindness. It's too draining. It's too scary. You need the power to overcome the fatigue and the power to overcome the fears. Where does that power come from? The God of the Bible is both loyal and vulnerable. God, he is the king of the universe. He is our king, but he is incredibly loyal to his people. Jeremiah chapter 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
And so in Genesis chapter 15, way back, all the way to the first book of the Bible, you have Abraham. Now, Abraham is a very, very interesting figure. In fact, Abraham is one of the only figures in the entire Bible where all three major world religions view Abraham as a father of their faith. And so he's a very, very important figure. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, he is filled with doubt. He's filled with doubt towards God, and he's filled with doubt towards himself. God had made him a promise. God had made him a tremendous promise, ultimately to work through him and use him to help to redeem everything that is broken in the world. And Abraham says, basically, he's saying to himself, how do I know that God is good for it? How do I know that even I'm good for it? Because Abraham knows himself. I'm not good for it. How does God respond? Well, he makes a covenant with Abraham. This is the king of the universe. God himself says, basically, through a covenant, through this agreement, a covenant is a life-binding, love-binding agreement. You are binding yourself to an individual so that their success is your success and their failure is your failure. You're saying, I will not let you fail. My joy is wrapped up and intertwined with your joy. My joy and my mission and my purpose and my meaning, my significance is wrapped up in your joy and meaning and purpose and significance. And so he makes this covenant with Abraham. This is the king of the universe, God himself. And he says, if I don't live up to my covenant. Now, back in the ancient times, when they made a covenant agreement with you, they didn't just verbalize the covenant. They not only verbalized it, but they enacted it. It was an oral culture. And so they, had, they acted out their contracts. And so after acting out his contract, God says this, basically to summarize or to paraphrase, he says, if I don't live up to my covenant, may I be torn apart in pieces. Look at the loyalty of God. If I'm not good for it, this is God speaking. If I'm not good for it, may I be ripped apart. That's what he says. Why? Yet do you know, do you know, in any contract, you have two parties. They both have to make promises. They both have to enact, act out the consequences to make the agreement. But God never has Abraham. He doesn't have Abraham say, well, if I don't live up to my promises, then may I be torn to pieces. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have Abraham utter the promises. He doesn't have Abram enact the promises. He doesn't do it. Why? Because he knows. He knows Abraham's going to fail. And yet he still enters into this covenant, this life-finding, intertwining relationship. Knowing that Abraham's going to fail. Knowing that Abraham's going to sin. Knowing that Abraham is going to break God's heart over and over and over again. That's the loyalty of God. That's the extent of the loyalty of God. And that's the vulnerability of God. He knows he's going to get hurt. He knows it's going to happen over and over and over again. And yet, he's saying, I will cover you over and over and over. He never has Abraham utter the promise. Why? Because he's going to cover for him over and over and over again. How? How does he cover for him? Centuries later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have Jesus. And there... His soul is being crushed. He is about to experience the weight of losing the most intimate relationship in his life in a forensic way on the cross. And so at that night at the Garden of Gethsemane, there he is. He could have chosen 
his own personal freedom, his own personal escape, but then he would lose his friends. Or he can demonstrate the ultimate act of kindness by sacrificing all of his freedom in his life so that he could keep his friends. You know what he does? He chose his friends to the point of suffering, to the point of the cross, to the point of death. Look at the loyalty of Jesus. Jesus could have said, well, my father made these promises, but I'm gonna make some changes here to the agreement. He doesn't do that. He who had the perfect right to be able to do that chose not to. He says, no, I love my friends. I've chosen my friends, even over my own life. Look at the loyalty of Jesus. And so the Hebrew author says, Jesus Christ, he is the exact representation of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God. And yet, look at Jesus Christ on the cross. There you see the, the vulnerability of Jesus. Every time you look at the cross of Jesus, you see Jesus opening himself up and saying, this is your sin. His blood being poured out, that's because of our sin. His blood, he's in agony and he's crying and, he, and he's dying because of our sin for us. On the cross, Jesus is absorbing every hurt, every sin, every pain that we've ever committed, that we've ever caused because of our sin. The cross is Jesus Christ becoming open completely. He's opening himself up. He's stripped naked on the cross. Why? It's because of his kindness, because of his love. On the cross, you see Jesus Christ, he's suffering, and he's agonizing, and he's bleeding, and he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is his, the most intimate relationship that he has ever known. I am in the Father, the Father is in me, I remain in the Father, he says, and yet there, he's ripped apart from his Father. God has forsaken him on the cross, and he's crying out in agony, why? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Look at the kindness of Jesus. Jesus Christ never came to his people. He never came to us because we're just nearby. He stepped out of eternity into time. He stepped out of the office throne in heaven and came into the world. It was never convenient nor easy. He didn't come unto us out of convenience. He didn't come to us because he had needs, because he was so needy and so lonely, even though he was so alone pretty much all of his life here on earth. So alone. Homeless. In poverty. Jesus didn't come here just because he had some agenda. He, he wanted here to build status and power. In fact, he came to lose status, to give up power. Why? For his friends. Because of his kindness. Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. 
That's the kindness of God. The cross is the ultimate demonstration, the ultimate picture of the kindness of God in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus. He says, remain in me. Because Jesus Christ endured the ultimate rejection and the ultimate betrayal and the ultimate abandonment and the ultimate loss, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was arrested, because he was beaten for his friends, because he was stripped naked, ultimately vulnerable. That way, nothing was going to mediate. There was nothing that was going to come in between him absorbing the full wrath of God as a penalty for his friends' sins. That's the love of God. And that's the love of Jesus. That's the love of Jesus. That's the loyalty of Jesus. Jesus Christ, completely loyal and yet totally vulnerable, crucified, naked, humiliated, arms stretched wide open, nailed to the cross, inviting you to come, beckoning you and welcoming you in. We can risk rejection. We can risk betrayal. We can risk loss. Why? We can be totally loyal. We can be vulnerable friends. We can be resilient friends. Because Jesus Christ, I mean, the proverb, Jesus Christ, he is the friend that loves at all times. It's his wounds that are faithful. Christ's wounds that are faithful. Faithful to heal. If you take in his words, his wounds can save. We can trust Jesus because he took the ultimate wounds for us. Kindness begins with trusting and walking through the doors of Jesus' invitation and welcome because of our friendship to him. Verse 12, he says, my command, though, is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Where do you get the power for that kind of loyalty, that kind of vulnerability, that kind of kindness? You see Jesus laying down his life, verse 13, pouring out his life, pouring out his blood, for you. And when you see Jesus doing that for you, when you see Jesus doing that in a way that's personal to you, when that truth and that reality of Jesus Christ on the cross becomes real to you, it will become sufficient for you. You don't need to look forward in other people. We get so disappointed because people don't live up to our expectations. Because we're so needy oftentimes. We don't need to do that anymore. You no longer have to live out of your emptiness because you've been made full. His, his love and his friendship and his kindness is sufficient for you. Now in your fullness, you can pour yourself out. Because Jesus' kindness came at the cost of his life, you can afford to be kind at the risk of yours. Now, what does it mean to respond to the kindness of Jesus? I'm going to give you a few practical applications. It's right here in this text. One, verse 7 he says, pray, pray. Verse seven, essentially, ask whatever you wish in his name. He says, if you remain in me, the way I remain in the Father, and, and you are faithful in that, he says, ask whatever you wish in his name. In other words, you can open up to Jesus. What is prayer? You're being vulnerable. That's what friendship is. That's what kindness is. 
You're practicing in your prayers to Jesus, opening up to Jesus, asking of Jesus, hearing from Jesus, asking him to make the word real to you in a way that it will get in you, shape you. You're becoming vulnerable. Verses 9 and 10, this is the second one. He says, obey my commands. He says, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. He says, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you are remaining in my love. Obey his commands. That's what it means to remain. In other words, stop obeying on your own terms. Stop doing church on your terms. Stop doing community only when it fits you, only when it works for you, and then withdraw or steal away or complain and grumble and leave when it doesn't work for you. That means you can obey and love and be kind even when you don't feel good, even when it's not fulfilling, even if it comes at a cost to you. Why? Because you see the loyalty of Jesus for you. And that's going to make you incredibly and deeply sacrificial. You see the cost that Jesus Christ paid for you. And that makes you willing to pay a cost for others. Thirdly, verse 11, it says, so that my joy is in you and your joy will be complete. That's what he says. If you remain in Jesus, if you're praying, if you're obeying, there's a delighting. There's a joy. You will delight in the Father. And joy is another dimension of the fruit of the Spirit. These are intertwined. The Apostle Paul doesn't say it's fruits of the Spirit. He said it's one fruit, meaning that there's many dimensions, and one dimension gives birth to other dimensions, and other dimensions give birth to other dimensions. They're all intertwined. They come out as one. Anyone can practice any one of those things on their own. You could try really, really hard, just like a branch that is torn away from the vine. You can try and work, and there's some, there might be some semblance of life left in there, and you can work, but eventually the juices wear out. You get tired, fatigued, and he says you will wither like a branch. But if you remain in the vine and the life of Christ and the power of Christ, the power of God's spirit is feeding you and sourcing you, it gives birth to much fruit. It bears much fruit. You see that? Fourthly, verses 12 to 17, he says, love each other. In other words, kindness doesn't seek a sense of worth from other people. You already have a sense of worth ultimately in Christ. Kindness is loving others, being loyal to others, being vulnerable uh, with others, even in the hard times, especially in times of difficulty. And that's not just with you and other people next to you the people that you're close with in the church, but as a body, as a community. Remember, Jesus is talking to the whole of his disciples. He's talking about as an entire body. That means that even in the difficult times of, your, of the body, even in times of this division, even in times of turbulence, even in times of uncertainty, you remain and you love. Lastly, to remain then in Jesus is to let Jesus define who you are letting his love be so sufficient in your life that you don't need to work to get love out of somebody else. You get me? Christ's love is so sufficient and so filling that you don't need to try to squeeze it out of someone that's a broken person. It's unfair to them. And it's, it's, a, it's like driving a 20-ton Mack truck over a bridge that can only hold two, you know, two tons. It's going to crash. It's going to fall. It's going to be broken, and it's going to break you. But if you let the love of Christ be so sufficient in your life, it will power you in a way 
that you will bear fruit. And because you're not trying to squeeze, most of our relationships are give and take, but if you not let it be give and take anymore, because the love of Christ is so sufficient that anything you give comes with no strings attached, it becomes genuine. You become a genuine person. You become a sweeter person. Gosh, there's so much more application I can go into. Um, but we're going to stop it here. I'm going to say this. Relationships, on one hand, give tremendous thrill. And so in kindness, there's tremendous thrill. There's tremendous life-giving, life-shaping power. But on the other hand, there's also tremendous responsibility. Any friendship, any relationship bears tremendous responsibility as well. A lot of us, if we're honest, we come into a community and we're looking for the thrill and we don't want the responsibility. But true kindness, a fruit of the Spirit, if the Spirit of God is working in you, you're committing to and you are owning the reality that there's ne there needs to be loyalty and vulnerability and those things cost. And it begins there. But when you do that, it's really the seedlings and the beginnings of genuine friendship, genuine community, genuine partnership, and genuine mission in the church. You first need it in Jesus. You need to discover it in Jesus. That's going to make life sweeter. And then in the richness of your relationship with Jesus, you're going to give it to other people. Let's practice that as a church and as a body as we come together. Let's pray.